wishing you a very warm welcome to all listeners of The Current Ban, the place for all things current and not so current. This episode is about time. A recent poster for Doctor Who pointed out it's about time that a female actress played the lead role. Of course, the series itself is about time travel. In this episode, we're going to look at time. What is it? How much of it have we got left? And other big questions like that. If you consider the timescales needed to erode river valleys or for fossils from an ancient seabed to be discovered at the tops of the Himalayan mountains, it's quite clear that the Earth is incredibly old. If the Earth's history was compressed into a single year, then humanity doesn't come into the scene until New Year's Eve, about 25 minutes to 12. You would just be sitting down to watch Jules Holland and waiting for the bells to come on the television. Another way of looking at time is thinking about the boundary in space of human civilization. For the last hundred years or so, we've been broadcasting signals out into the universe. Radio waves, television waves, etc. If you imagine an alien species looking in, light travels at 3 times 10 to the 8 metres a second, and 100 light years away would be approximately the time that our civilization could be detected from. Any further than this, you would simply get radio silence. Although, of course, with telescopes and imaging, might be able to deduce life from the spectrum of the Earth itself and uh, looking at the elements present on the planet. But there wouldn't actually be direct contact uh, with an alien species more than 100 light years away. And in the vastness of this universe, that is a mere drop in the ocean. A poem which looks at time was written by the radical poet, the romantic poet Shelley. It's called Ozymandias. Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, Half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. The poem is referring to the discovery, recent at that time, of the colossal statue of Ramesses II in Egypt, Look upon these works, ye mighty, and despair. 
a warning to the enemies of the Pharaoh, but also a warning in time about immortality. In the midst of a global pandemic, it seems quite appropriate as well to look at another warning from history, Edgar Allan Poe's classic short story, The Mask of the Red Death. In it, the imagery is really quite stark. Uh, Colours representing childhood through life to death are represented by different coloured rooms in the castle. And the attempt to shut away the horrors of the disease by locking himself and his companions into his keep is all too familiar and prophetic given today's circumstances. The Mask of the Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, were the pest ban which shut him out from the aid and sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress and termination of the disease were the instance of but half an hour. Prince Prospero was a happy and dauntless and sagacious man. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court, and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric, yet august, taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. Resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons... There were improvisatory, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was towards the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends to masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first, let me tell of the rooms in which it was held. These were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here, the case was very different as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bazaar. 
The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor, which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose colour varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only the colour of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood colour. Now in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum. Amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof, there was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood opposite to each window a heavy tripod bearing the brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illumined the room and thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered. There were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also. There stood against the western wall a gigantic clock made of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang and when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of an hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily their performance, to hearken to the sound, and thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions, and there was a brief disconcert of the whole gay company, and while the chimes of the clock yet rang, it was observed that the giddiest grew pale, and the more aged and sedate passed their hands over their brows, as if a confused reverie or meditation. But when the echoes had fully ceased, a light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled, as if their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. But then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies... There came yet another chiming of the clock, and then there were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditations as before. But in spite of these things, 
It was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colours and effects. He disregarded the decorer of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery and his conceptions glowed with barbaric lustre. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the mobile embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fete, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been seen since Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of what which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked, in fact, a multitude of dreams, and these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon there strikes the ebony clock, which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still, and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are still frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away. They have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them, as they depart. And now again the music swells and the dreams live and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber, which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-coloured panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal, or solemnly emphatic, than any which reaches their ears who indulged in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life, and the revel went whirlingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolution of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, and thus it happened perhaps that more of thought crept with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful amongst those who reveled, and thus too it happened perhaps that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumour of this new presence, having spread itself whisperingly around, there rose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then finally of terror of horror and disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, 
It may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out-herited Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters about which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, now seemed deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger, neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny may have difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved by, the mad revellers around. But the mummer had gone so far to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was besprinkled with a scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon the spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed, in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste, but in the next his brow reddened with rage. Who dares? he demanded hoarsely of the courtier who stood near him. Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him, unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern or blue chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, for the Prince was a bold and robust man, and music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the prince with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that Unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person, and while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centres of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him, on account of a deadly terror that seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger, and had approached, in rapid impetuosity, to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly, and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning wild courage of despair, 
a throng of the revellers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave sediments and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night. And one by one dropped the revellers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay and the flames of the tripods expired, and darkness, and decay, and the red death had a limitable dominion over all. A chilling and disturbing story indeed. So how much time do we have? One of the major threats to our existence on this planet is, of course, global warming. Greta Thunberg said that we should act as if our house is on fire, as, in a very real sense, it is. Yet, despite pretty words, world leaders have largely ignored her pleas. CO2 emissions are still on the increase. We urgently need to end our reliance on fossil fuels. We are burning the planet's resources and it is coming back to bite us with a vengeance. To look at the effect of runaway global warming, we just need to look outside our own planet to our near neighbour in the solar system, Venus, which has the highest temperatures of any planet in the whole solar system, a runaway greenhouse effect caused by vast methane clouds which trap the sun's energy. Likewise, the Earth is warming due to human-induced climate change at a faster rate than we have ever known. It is not the absolute amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, although these are at a historically high level, but actually the rate of change, which is totally unprecedented. Natural selection evolution is simply too slow to cope with such rapid warming processes. And there are numerous tipping points. For example, the Siberian permafrost, if melted, releasing huge reservoirs of methane below the surface, And the albedo effect, where lighter ground obviously reflects sunlight more, but as snow in the Arctic and Antarctic melts at a faster rate than the Earth's equator, then that will have a positive feedback loop and increase the rate of warming. Many of these things are very complicated and hard to predict. The Amazon rainforest is now actually emitting more CO2 than it can absorb due to the amount of deforestation in South America, all of which is unpredictable and unprecedented 
and has having an, a huge effect on our climate. We are having more extreme weather events, more um, unpredictable weather, and in the long run, it could tip the balance between our planet being habitable or uninhabitable. The response of the big polluters, the companies who are actually responsible for the vast majority of global warming is, as might be expected, denial, cover-up and obfuscation. British Petroleum, for example, came up with the idea of a carbon footprint, but not in any way to show its own blame for global warming. It is, after all, one of the biggest polluters on the planet. It was simply to pass the blame for our predicament onto individuals rather than big corporations. Likewise, Amazon, despite pledging billions of pounds to combat global warming and investing in uh, a fleet of uh, carbon-neutral trucks to deliver parcels, actually increased its carbon dioxide emissions in the last year, despite the fall in emissions due to the global pandemic and people using transport less and consuming less. These problems have been compounded by what's called peak oil. As oil and gas begin to run short, then companies are driven by the lust for profit to seek more radical and more damaging sources of energy, including fracking, for example. This is hugely damaging to the environment. It doesn't actually make sense in terms of the amount of energy recovered uh, because it actually pollutes aquifers and underground water. It is massively damaging in terms of methane and carbon dioxide emissions and also the transport needed for the huge quantities of water that are required to actually get the underground gas up to the surface. So I wrote a little song, um, well, I didn't write the lyrics, but I put them together. It's called Fracking Medley. We're fracking, we're fracking, I'm gonna frack it with you, yeah. Going underground, going underground, I'm going deeper underground. Underground, overground, wombling free like an atom bomb about to whoa, ho, 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 explode. Two minutes to midnight, the hands that threaten doom. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. You shook me all night long. Sharia don't like it, rock the Casbah, rock the Casbah, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing, say it again, yeah. And I'm a heat seeker gonna burn up your town, I got a fever of a hundred and three, ooh, I'm on fire. Frack, baby, frack, show them you're real. Dirty deeds and they're done dirt cheap. Get up, stand up. Stand up for your rights. 
Excuse me, Mr. Officer, murderer. Don't stop me now, I'm having such a good time. Come into the jailhouse, rock with me, let's rock. I'll stand in front of you. I'll take the force of the blow. Protection. I'll stand in front of you. I'll take the force of the blow. Protection. But in spite of all the doom and gloom, I would argue that there is still grounds for optimism. The new global climate movement has become the biggest youth movement since the 1960s. The gigantic climate strikes of September 2019, put forward by Extinction Rebellion, were a huge protest across the world. It's remarkable that two years after the first global climate strike, despite the difficulties in the pandemic, um, there is still activity and it shows that the younger generation understands the severity of the climate crisis and the urgent need for radical change. The need for a resurgence of the movement in 2021 could not be clearer. There are droughts in Africa, bushfires in Australia and California, and typhoons in Asia and hurricanes in the Americas. In Europe, mass floods have happened in Germany, while the UK is basking in one of the shortest summers of all time. This is an international problem, and to solve it, we need international cooperation across borders. You may argue that changing our economic system is unrealistic, and therefore we should try to focus on improving the status quo. But it simply can't be solved within the limits of capitalism. Companies always strive to maximise their profits and increase their production and market share. This means pushing down wages, lobby against higher taxes, more stringent environmental restrictions and denying and seeking to obfuscate, as I said earlier, global warming and looking to profit from greenwashing their public image. So while we fight for improvements in the here and now, it needs to be combined with demands, fighting methods and a programme that leads beyond capitalism. Only a democratic socialist society can solve the climate and environmental crisis, so it's really hopeful that so many people are beginning to look for answers. While the elite cannot overcome conflict and competition, our answer must also be international. We've seen young people joining forces and building solidarity in the climate movement. The Indian climate activist Disha Ravi, Greta Thunberg and others have supported the protest and strike movement of Indian farmers. The climate movement needs to build cooperation and solidarity with other movements across the world. We need to build cooperation through engaging with and supporting grassroots working-class activists who are waging struggles, for example in the social and healthcare sector. Working-class people are the most affected by the crisis of the climate. They are the ones who can't escape to tropical islands or build underground uh, bunkers to protect themselves. They are forced to live in some of the more vulnerable parts of the world. 
They're also the experts who know how to change production so that it's sustainable and ecological. And more importantly, they have the power to stop the capitalist machine from making profits. We have the power to strike, to withdraw our labour. There is an anti-capitalist mass mobilisation for the International Climate Summit in November in 2021, with a massive counter-summit in Glasgow and mass protests around the world. That global day of climate action there needs to build a mass movement around a set of demands that challenge the system and invite everyone to come on board. The coronavirus crisis has triggered the deepest economic crisis for a 100 years. Instead of going back to normal, in inverted commas, this can also be a chance to completely change what we produce and how it is produced. It's become obvious which important sectors of the economy are actually important and which are not. We need staff in health, education and public transport and reduction of the working day with no loss of pay. This would improve the lives of people across the world but would also help to bring down emissions and give people more time for political activities, culture and leisure. A good life for all while protecting the planet is feasible, but to render it possible we need to take sectors such as energy, transport, healthcare, agriculture and big pharma into democratic public ownership. Instead of the profit need that capitalism is ruled by, We need to put people's needs centre stage and we need to replace market chaos by democratic planning. To win these demands, we need to win fighting trade unions and build parties for ordinary people that will uncompromisingly fight for the necessary environmental and climate protection measures as well as against unemployment, job losses and for social improvements. The money is there in society The richest men on the planet are currently indulging in a pointless race into space. Let's make them pay to solve the problems that they are the ones who created. Together we are the working class and the oppressed. Together we have a world to win.